Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we have Jared J.R. Piper, Fair Cash Offer, another Phoenix guy. And he's going to talk about how he brings home $20,000 a month passively while traveling the world. If this is your first time tuning in, I am Steve Trang, sales trainer for some of the top wholesalers in the country, and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. A uh, question I get a lot is how do, how do you become one of the 100 millionaires? Information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. Take consistent action and you will become one. When you hear a nugget, please type it in the comment section after the show, identify your single biggest takeaway, and focus on just that for the next seven days. If you get value today, please tag a friend below, share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for JR to answer. You ready? Ready. All right, so first question is what got you into real estate first of all thanks for having me on the show steve it's good oh, to be dude, here it's man. good to have you yeah here. finally um so i i've actually been in real estate since 2011 or 2012 somewhere somewhere in there and i started i was actually working a corporate job and i had a buddy that was doing a lot of wholesale and fix and flips and stuff out of the trustee sale, right? Lots changed since then, but yeah, back then- but there were a lot of those guys doing that back then. Yeah, back then that's where everybody went to get discount properties. Mm-hmm. So he was doing probably five or 10 deals a day out of the trustee sale auctions, um, just killing it. And this was 2011, so you know, just like there's a million uh, foreclosures every single day. And he was, he started selling properties to a, another buddy of mine who was, had made a bunch of money and was just parking money in real estate, okay? And these two guys approached me and they asked me if I wanted to get involved. Basically, they needed someone to manage the day-to-day of like rehabbing the properties and overseeing the property management. I knew nothing about real estate at the time. But I was at the time, I was actually working a night shift in a treatment mm-hmm. facility in Mesa. And so I was working the night shift. And then during the day, I was driving around checking on contractors. And I made a lot of mistakes during that time. I was like hiring <laughs> contractors off a of Craigslist and... Uh, you know, made made a lot of mistakes in someone else's dime, um, but I learned a lot in, right. in, that, in that period. And so I I loved it. I was fascinated by the whole process, and I I started going to real estate school to get my license. So at night I was working the night shift. I was studying in the back office in between like busy you know hours, mm-hmm. and I was studying for my real estate exam. And then I would go during the day and drive properties and check on contractors and deal with tenants and the foreclosure stuff and all the different things we were doing. And, um, and eventually, I actually got fired from that job. And, the night job? Yeah, got fired from that job. And it forced me into real estate full time. So it's, you know, sink or swim time. Mm-hmm. And I, I started working with these guys, brokering deals as their realtor once I got my license. And I worked as a realtor for a number of years um, with a, you know, focus on investing. And I basically, you know, since I started watching these guys buy a rental portfolio and build a rental portfolio out of the trustee auctions, I, I always had it in my mind that you know, passive income was like the goal. And so I, I started saving some money and, and looking to invest in real estate myself. So 2013, I bought my first rental and then I started doing some fix and flips. And I think it wasn't until 2016 or 17 that I actually stopped working as a realtor for other people and just yeah. focused full time on investing myself. These guys are still in the business? Um, yeah, the one that bought all those houses is he's got other businesses, but he, he still owns a large rental portfolio. The other guy is involved, but he's not, He's also pretty passive at this point. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they made a killing in those times. Yeah. Don't really need to work too hard right now. Yep. 
Okay, so you made a lot of mistakes, but they weren't on your dime. So were there any challenges then getting into real estate? Um, I mean, learning learning project management mm-hmm. when I knew nothing about construction or <laughs> how to how to find contractors or how yeah. to manage them. So they they just threw you to the wolves. They're like, hey, we need a project manager. Go figure it out. Yeah. It basically, it was, it, I mean, it was like, it was, a, it was a classic case of right place at the right time. Uh-huh. They came to me and they said, Hey, you know, this guy wants to buy a bunch of houses and rent them out, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to deal with any of it. Like he right. just wants to put up the money and do nothing. And so we want you to do the, the grunt work. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, you know, in hindsight, it's like, I got paid very little to do that. But right. it, like, I always tell people, if I go back and do it again, I do it for free mm-hmm. because I learned so much in that first year of doing that, that it would have taken me several years to learn on my own. So what did you get compensated for doing all that? I think I was getting, I was getting a thousand dollars per remodel and 5% of the gross rents mm-hmm. per month. Yeah. So that's not, that's not awful. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but yeah. you know, you know, $700 a month was like the average rent. And so it was a couple hundred, few hundred bucks a month. Um, but it was, there was a lot of time involved in it. For sure. You know? The only reason why I bring this up because there's people like, how do I get started? What do I do? And I always say like, <clears throat> one of the options if you don't have money is just go work for somebody yeah. and learn on their dime, which you did. And it was an expensive dime for them, Yeah. <laughs> right? But the experience you get far outweighs the, the financial compensation you're trying to get. But a lot of people can't wrap their head around that. Yeah, it's, it's invaluable. Yeah, so you want to elaborate on that a little bit because I want some of the people that are listening to appreciate the the, the value of that. Yeah, excuse me. So uh, people who know how I started in real estate, you know, sometimes say, man, you were so lucky. Like you had these these heavy hitters that you were just attached at the hip to from day one. And it's true, I was very fortunate to be in that position. But the truth is, they weren't like pulling any favors for me, right? Mm-hmm. I was friends with these guys. I've, I've known both of them for most of my life. But we have a very clear distinction between our business relationship and our friendship, mm-hmm. right? And this was a business relationship. Yeah. And so they didn't, they weren't doing me any favors. They didn't take it easy on me when I made mistakes. Um, I was in the position that I was in to do that mm-hmm. and presented with that opportunity because of the value I brought. Yeah. You know, they, I, I, like I say, right place, right time. They just needed someone that they trusted who was intelligent enough to like manage it. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be sitting in the car with them when they were having that conversation. <laughs> right. But, right. um, what I tell people who are new, who want to, you know, everybody wants to be the guy, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to have a big team and do, you know, run a seven figure business. What I tell people is, you know, if you're starting out, sometimes it makes sense to just not worry about the money or the outcome and just get attached to somebody who's doing what you want to be doing. Right. And the most important part about that is figure out a way to add value to their life and their business. And then by proximity, you will learn what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And as you start to save some money and create your own opportunities, you can you can do what they were doing. Right. So what was your first deal in like JR's first deal? <clears throat> My first deal, um, so I had, so that's tricky because I, like I said, I was, I was a realtor and I was, I had bought my first rental property in 2013. It was a Maryville house, which I actually just sold last year. I bought that house for $53,500. I put 10 grand into it. I had a hard money loan at like 10 or 12% interest. Mm-hmm. 
and um, which I refinanced out of a couple years later. I just sold that last year for two hundred five thousand. Nice. But um, but my first wholesale deal. So I'll tell you two stories actually. So I, as a realtor, I had I had someone come to me at one point and said, "Hey, I've my landlord wants to sell his house, and uh, I'm going to put him in touch with you." Okay, and so. I had this conversation with the landlord and he, for whatever reason, he didn't want to list the property on the MLS. And he said, I will pay you a 3% commission if you bring me a buyer. And I said, how much do you want for the house? He said, $100,000. I thought it was super realistic. I thought I could probably sell it for more than that. So I went out and I found a buyer and I came back to him and the buyer paid 110. Mm -hmm. Now the extra 3%, <laughs> the, the extra, you know, 10,000, 3% of 10 mm -hmm. grand, it wasn't, it was, wasn't much, right? right. But the seller made an extra 10 grand. He was thrilled about it. Yeah. And I, it occurred to me after that closed, you know, if I had had a way to just buy that property and resell it, mm -hmm. I could have made the 10 grand. Yeah. You know? And he still would have been happy because mm -hmm. he got what he wanted. Like it would have been truly a win win, you know? Right. And so, um, so I, I, that was like a missed opportunity, but something clicked that, hey, there's, there's a better opportunity here than being a realtor. Mm -hmm. Right. And so my first, I, I actually did a few different deals with my buddy that I mentioned in the beginning, right? And I would I would basically find a deal on the MLS or something and I would lock it up and I would call my buddy and say, hey, I think I got a deal, this is a good deal. And he would sell it and we would split the profit 50-50. And the first time that it occurred to me that I could really do it on my own was when I locked up the deal, I partnered with him, he worked on it to find a buyer, but I actually found a buyer who wanted it mm -hmm. and he sold it and then my buyer called me back after you know, we had sold it and said, I'll take it. And I said, it's already sold. But it, it occurred to me then, I can actually <laughs> just do this on my own. I right. don't need help anymore, mm -hmm. you know? And so I would say the first one that really like hit home was when I drew that line in the sand and I, it was like 2016 or 2017. And I just made a decision because I loved investing in real estate and I didn't love being a realtor. It was, no? it was good money. It was good money, right? But it it wasn't, I wasn't passionate about it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to focus all my time and energy on investing. I started marketing in 2016 or 17, direct mail, sent out 10,000 10, letters my first month uh, of, of marketing, and I got a deal immediately, and I made $40,000 on it. Mm -hmm. And that's when it was like, okay, there's something to this, yeah. and it's time to blow it up. It's crazy, so mm -hmm. you became real, you're doing direct mail pieces, and that's working. At which point were, were you like, okay, I've got this passive income goal, this is what I'm gonna do, or I got this lifestyle goal, like when did you have that epiphany or, or, or clarity? Yeah, uh, so like I said, so from day one, because I started working with guys that were buying houses at trustee sale, and well, the one guy anyway, was, was just buying houses to rent them out, that was his whole focus. I kind of started with that mindset of like, I wanna buy real estate, acquire as much as I can, and generate as much passive income as I can because I observed that he had nothing to do with the properties or the construction or the business itself. Mm -hmm. And he was making, you know, once it got scaled up and stabilized, like he was making 20, 30 grand a month, right. you know? And so it was like, well, that's what I want, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> so that's kind of always been the focus. Mm -hmm. And I, as I started wholesaling and flipping houses consistently, I always have looked at the bigger picture I, I mean, I love wholesaling. I, I enjoy flipping. I don't, I try to avoid flipping a lot of houses because I, I don't love managing construction, but 
I've always viewed flipping and wholesaling as a way to spin off a ton of cash mm -hmm. so that I can afford to invest in assets that will pay me passively while I sleep, while I travel, do whatever right. I want. So the passive income was clear from your mentors, your friends. Mm -hmm. When was the traveling thing like, oh, this is what I got to do? Yeah. When did you get the travel bug? Uh, so I want to say uh, 2015, <clears throat> I took my first trip, first big trip anyway, to the Philippines. And I traveled through Southeast Asia for maybe five, five or six weeks. I went to several countries and um, it was just a, like a really uh, life altering moment for me. Mm -hmm. Like it, it awoke my spirit in a way that nothing else really had. And, uh, and I, ever since I've just tried to travel every opportunity that I get, you know, it's never, it's a lot like having kids, I think. I don't have kids, but from what I hear, like <laughs> you're never quite ready, yeah. you know? So I always think of booking trips, like kind of like, like there's never going to be a perfect time. You're never going to have all your ducks lined up and in a row. And it's like, everything's ready. Like you just gotta, I shut my eyes and I book it. Mm -hmm. Right. I watch travel deal websites and I, I'm like, I'll see a deal pop up and I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to Japan next month. Right. You know, like, I'm out. Oh, wow. Just yeah. like that. Just like that. Yeah. Gotcha. So, yeah. So I did, I mean, 2015, I took a couple big trips. I did a trip to Southeast Asia. I did a trip through South America with a couple friends. We drove from Phoenix, Arizona to Santiago, Chile. And we're back. All right, guys. Sorry about that. So, yeah, we were talking that um, JR was shipping his car through Panama. So talk about that. Yeah, so the, the South America trip, uh, we drove from Phoenix to Santiago, Chile, shipped the car across the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. And um, at three months, got shaken down by a lot of border agents, <laughs> got pulled over. Well, let's, let's, let's explain. What does shaken down mean? Not everyone has world experience here. What does shaken down mean? So in, in South America, and I'm sure uh, many other parts of the world, when you cross a border by vehicle, you have to go through a whole process. Now, like, if you cross from Mexico into the United States. It's a pretty pretty structured, straightforward process, right? Yeah. It's organized. Mm -hmm. Now crossing from like El Salvador into Honduras, not so organized. <laughs> it's it's literally like you you drive up to the border, you you got to park in a line of cars, you go into a little hut, they give you a piece of paper, you go down the block, around the corner, second house on the left, you give it to them, they give you a different piece of paper, you take that down the block and around the corner, They, you know, you wake up a guy that's sleeping in a hammock and he rolls over and prints something off on a printer that's for some reason laying next to the hammock, hands that to you, you take it across the street, you get it stamped, you go back to the first place, it's like insanity. I did not know that. It's insanity, okay? Very disorganized, It's <laughs> it's complete chaos, and so, in a lot of these places, you know, one of two things will happen. Either you'll meet someone who just walks up to your car as you're approaching the border and they say, hey, you're going to need a guide because it's a clusterfuck in here. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, tip me and I'll just, you know, expedite your process. Mm -hmm. Right. And that guy inevitably is going to tell you at every stop there's, hey, you got to pay 20 bucks for this, but you got to wait here. And then they come back and there's no receipt and you don't know where the 20 bucks went. Hey, and it's now it's 40 bucks at this other mm -hmm. stop. And I, Hey, and it's, and I need $25 for this guy. And it's like, you don't know where any of that money's actually going, but my guess is like most of it's going into his pocket, if not all, all right. of it. Uh, and then border agents, of course, in some of these countries just straight up tell you like, yeah, you're not going to be able to pass. It's going to be four hours, but if you give me 20 bucks, I'll let you go now. You know, we'll just skip the whole process. So. Front of the line pass. Yeah. 
That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So, um, another thing we're talking about is we talk about 20k a month passive. So you're, you're there now. Mm-hmm. How long or what did you have to do to get to 20k? Because I think a lot of people that get into this business, they don't get into the wholesale. Well, some people do, right? They see the checks and it's exciting. Yeah. But most people get into it for the passive income. Wholesaling is just a mechanism. Yeah. How long did it take for you to get to the 20k a month passive? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, nine years, you know, yeah. but, and, and honestly, that's like, I've, 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 you know, sold some properties that I could have kept that would have added to that, you know, cash flow. I've sold some properties that, um, I had in my portfolio that, you know, were producing income and I, I, I cut them for whatever reason, but, uh, you know, it's a slow build. And the way that I've done it, it, it did take a very long time because I have in my entire portfolio, like I think I have, there's like a, there's a, a like two or three hard money loans and mm-hmm. then I've got five 30 year mortgages and the rest of them are all free and clear. So uh, it's, it's taken some time to get there, but I bought my first property, rental property in 2013 and then I've just continued to acquire as I've wholesaled and been exposed to a lot of good deals. Mm-hmm. I, I keep anything that makes sense that I can then, you know, pay off in cash and, and cross collateralize assets and go to a bank and get lines of credit, which I know is a whole different subject. Right. So I've heard some rules of thumb, you know, keep one in every four or one in every five. Uh, I've heard someone, you know, Leon Johnson, who's on the show, he's like, his only regret is that he ever sold any of his properties. Mm-hmm. So like, do you have a rule of thumb that you're shooting for or is it just play by ear? Yeah. My, my rule of thumb is if it fits my buy box mm. and I can afford to keep it, I'm keeping it. Got it. I, I've kept properties that other people thought I was insane for keeping because mm-hmm. I could have made 60000 or $100,000 wholesale fee in a day. Yeah. But I decided to close on it and put it in my portfolio because, again, I've always been focused on the bigger picture. I think it's really easy to get you know, excited about that quick cash, and mm-hmm. it's understandable. I mean, to be able to make $50,000 or $100,000 on a single transaction, that's, like, life-changing right. for, for most people. So, it you know having $500 a month in cash flow instead is not quite as sexy. I'm still looking for those um, rent deposits on Instagram. I know I never see anyone post their rent deposits. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mine's all electronic. So I don't, even, yeah. I don't even get, you know, checks in the mail, but so you mentioned the cross cross collateralization, mm-hmm. right? Which is an important concept for important <laughs> thing for people that are trying to have this model, right? Owning properties to cash flow. So you want to just say, high level what we're talking about here yeah so basically what what i'm referring to um is i will buy properties with cash free and clear unencumbered and then i'll take a package of homes to a bank and i will have them give me a commercial line of credit on those homes so once you have enough lines of credit, then you can just continue to buy more real estate with the money that the bank's giving you. My mm-hmm. interest rates at, at a couple different banks are between like three and 4%. Wow, that's you really know, good. Yeah, I think uh, 3.75 and 4% is where I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. It's basically prime plus zero, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so, you know, I, I'm i constantly trying to just acquire new assets that, that make sense. The, the biggest thing is you gotta buy deals that actually make sense as a rental. But my, my other rules of thumb is that I like to, if I do refinance it and or, or get put debt on it, I like to be at 60 or 65% loan to value or less, right? And, and, Why? and be able to pull all my cash out because it's then I'm safe in, in a recession. If the market corrects and values drop, 
you know, uh, I don't think we're going to see another 2008, but if they drop or if that did happen again, I'd be totally safe. Right. I wouldn't even lose a night of sleep, you know? Yeah. You're protected. Mm-hmm. Um, with making the kind of income you're making now passively, why can't you keep all of them right now? Because not all of them work. Some, it, it, some I don't want to keep because maybe it's not in the right area or it has certain features that I don't want to deal with, you know. Um, and, I, and I will say there are deals where it, it, if the spread's big enough, I just go ahead and sell it, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I want to keep revenue coming in to my business so I can fund other rentals too. Got it. Now, talking about these kinds of numbers, you must have a giant operation. No, not at all. <laughs> so what's your operation? So uh, my operation right now is me and, and uh, an admin assistant. And it's been that way pretty much since I started. I have at times over the years, you know, had a couple of other employees and acquisitions, dispositions, lead manager, but, uh, I've never, I've never felt like, um, <clears throat> I enjoy simplicity in my life. So each time I've scaled it up, I've ended up scaling it back down and just keeping it simple. I've, I've noticed that <clears throat> with a big organization comes a lot of payroll and a lot of headaches. And it's just not something that I personally want to manage or mm-hmm. expose myself to. Having a small team and just doing the majority of the work myself not only allows me to have much higher profit margins, so at the end of the year I can actually net more than I might if I had a big team and you know did double the revenue, but it also gives me the freedom and flexibility to do whatever I want to do. I can travel, I can take off for a month or two at a time and go explore a different region of the world. I can go in the office at noon if I feel like it. Right. I go snowboarding every every year for no, I see those you know, pictures a couple of weeks. On yeah. Instagram, I get a little jealous. So how are you taking the inbound calls if you're in the Philippines or in South America? Like, how does that work? You got a seller, you're sending out a direct mail piece, seller calls. How are you handling those calls? Or if you're on, on, the, on, a, on a chairlift, right? Getting ready to right. come down the mountain. Like, how are you handling those calls? Yeah. So uh, I just answer it and say, I'm on the chairlift. I'll call you back. No. <laughs> um, I mean, the reality is that's that's the downside to having a smaller organization mm-hmm. is it's a little bit more complex to be closing deals when I'm in the Philippines because it, things aren't getting paid as much attention to as they would were if I was there. I can't physically be at the property and face-to-face with the seller and all these things. You know, I, I have had trips where my admin assistant is continuing to answer the calls and then I'm just essentially sending a buyer to the property mm-hmm. and they're closing it with the seller and paying me an assignment fee, you know, and, and just like we work it out that way. So you have to have really tight <clears throat> relationships. I've got excellent relationships with my buyers. I know some really great people in the Phoenix market, but, um, but the truth is the majority of the time when I'm traveling, I'm shutting off the direct mail and I'm not actually marketing while I'm gone. I'm not actively working that much while I'm away. I still am doing things while I'm traveling. I never really stop or clock out entirely, but um, that's kind of the downside of being a smaller operation is, you know, if I'm not working, things do kind of grind to a halt. (laughs) What, um, because with direct mail, I've always heard that you got to be consistent. Mm -hmm. So if you're shutting it off and restarting it, are you finding that hurting you in your business? Yes, yes and no. So it, it it does give me an opportunity to kind of retool and and find new 
methods when I get back, mm -hmm. right? And sort of re-examine what I'm doing as opposed to just being on autopilot and sending out like the same stuff and same list and like just sort of doing, going through the motions of doing the same stuff over and over again. But at the same time, it, it does hurt because when, you know, direct mail there's always a ramp up period of you know three months or three three mail cycles before you really start getting the calls and mm -hmm. like i have i mean even today like i haven't sent direct mail in the last three months and i still get calls occasionally from people that have like just been holding my letter for six months right yeah. so as you're sending direct mail and being consistent which i agree is key you're, you're gonna have more and more calls from not just the people that received your letter that day, but people that have received it in the past and then it just, it, it grows, right? But um, when I'm on a trip and I shut it off, it, it stops, those, those calls stop trickling in. Mm -hmm. And then when I get back, it's kind of like, I have to start it all over again and, and go through that ramp up phase again. So that is a little bit of a, you know, a downside to, right. to doing that. Is direct mail your only avenue? It, it, it was, I have, so I've done, I will say that it was my predominant source of marketing. I've done um, Facebook marketing, I've done some cold calling, and I'm now experimenting with Google AdWords, but direct mail has been the bulk of my marketing and mm -hmm. where I've made like 90% of my money yeah. from marketing. And so I've told some people, you know, like, hey, you know, where everyone's talking about texting and cold calling and RVMs and this and that. And I've said like, there are people quietly, not loudly, quietly saying direct mail works. You're one of them, right? Mm -hmm. You're one of a handful of people that's like, yeah, dude, I still do direct mail and it's crushing it. Mm -hmm. But like, yes, please keep telling people about texting. <laughs> yeah, it's funny when RVM came out, everyone was doing RVM and texting, like all these different, they were trying these different things and my direct mail stats went through the roof. Yeah. Cause like so many people stopped mailing right. and I just kept sending out my, my mail and uh, yeah. Yeah, going against the grain definitely pays off. Yeah, it's tried and true. Yeah. So we're in Phoenix, mm -hmm. and I don't know if you know this, there's a handful of gurus out here. Yep. So More than a handful. <laughs> <laughs> so how is your operation different than our peers? Yeah. I mean, my operation is different for the simple fact that I'm more or less a one-man band. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the guys in our market have the team and the infrastructure, and, and with that comes, you know, the big overhead and the payroll and the big office and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I sometimes I I, I envy that because I, I, I say, man, I, I, really, I wish I had the ability to go snowboarding for a week in Park City and still have this machine that operates while I'm gone, mm -hmm. you know? But again, like going back to my original vision, my vision has always just been about building the passive income stream through rental properties. And so I, you know, I, I do enough revenue with me and one assistant to be able to continue to build my portfolio and have the lifestyle that I want. And it just keeps my life really simple. I yeah. work when I want to work. I travel when I want to travel. I, I make plenty of money and I don't have like the headache of managing people and having to like manage all these systems and, and the stress or the, the weight of like, a, you know, a really high payroll or a lot of overhead. Yeah. If we don't close a deal this month, we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're doing something right because uh, I, I, when we posted that you were going to be on the show, we had Jamil and uh, Pace and Brian Manley. Nice. I was like, oh, we love JR. So yeah, great guys. You're doing something right. So then I guess, you know, doing a million in revenue, how much, how much are you wholesaling right now? How much are you flipping right now? 
Um, so I, like I said, I try and avoid doing a lot of flips because mm -hmm. I don't like doing big rehabs. It's just, it's just brain damage to manage for me as a, as a one man operation. Again, it'd be different if I hired a project manager, which I, I might at some point, but, um, for now I just, I do all of it myself and my assistant helps. Mm -hmm. Um, I do probably five or six flips a year, uh, like big, big rehabs. And then I wholetail a decent amount, anything that I either can't wholesale, uh, wholesale or that just doesn't need a full rehab or the margin is 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 worth it i'll take it down and and list it on the mls i'm yeah. still licensed today so i just list it myself so i don't have to pay a listing agent and then i and then i have um i do maybe 50 60 wholesale deals a year gotcha mm -hmm. gotcha you know it's funny um i know we've been connected for some time we didn't really meet until uh you and i both showed up to a random ria asria yeah. yep so I just thought that was funny, right? Like there's all these different RIAs and this and that, and you know, a couple of guys in town, but that's how we connect. Yep. Uh, so you were talking about direct mailing being your best marketing channel. Um, the question that always comes up in every Facebook group is, what list? Yeah, so my list is actually extremely broad. Mm -hmm. I don't. I actually have done very little marketing to distress lists. Mm -hmm. I like to always think about where everybody else is not going. So you know, for example, for uh, you know, everybody mails the wants wants a probate list or foreclosure mm -hmm. list or you know, uh, whatever, right? Uh, and so I've I've always marketed to just more of a, a broad list. Anyone that's uh, older than 55, I tend to see that, you know, elderly or older population values convenience a lot more than someone in their 30s mm -hmm. or 40s. So I've had better luck with, with an older population and anyone that's owned the property for over like 10 or 15 years, more likely to sell. And then, you know, the, the callback ratio on those, on that type of list is not going to be as high as something, you know, foreclosure, a pre foreclosure list or mm -hmm. like a, a, you know, a high distress list. But um, it, to me, it's just been very consistent and I've gotten a lot more leads where there's not as much competition. I'm sitting in the, the kitchen. I mean, nowadays it's like they've got 10 letters on the table right. <laughs> when you walk in, but, um, you know, back a couple years ago, it was like, I was getting a lot of leads where I was the only guy they were talking to. And so it's kind of like a cold call and a high equity list. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, there's deals there. It's not as many people, right. but when you find them, yep. they're great deals. Yep. So. Um, one thing you and I were talking about offline was that the your fee in Phoenix has gotten a little bit of a pressure. Yeah. So time. what was your fee two, three years ago? What's your fee today? So my fee in 2017, 18 was between 20, 23 and $27,000 average, average wholesale fee. And today it's, it's like half that it's yeah. like 12, 13 grand. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. There's a few guys, again, we blame, we can blame all those other gurus out there. <laughs> So uh, then I guess running a lower overhead business, what is your monthly marketing? What is your monthly overhead? So um, my monthly overhead is, I wanna say like between 12 and 15,000. That includes payroll and just all the systems and you know random subscriptions and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I pay myself about 100,000 a year, so that includes my salary. And then marketing, I'm spending well, I'm spending nothing on direct mail right now, but when I was sending, you know, a lot of mail, I was doing maybe 20 to 25,000 a month um, dollars, which is about 40 or 50,000 pieces a month mm -hmm. that I was sending out. 
and uh, and then right now I'm experimenting with Google AdWords. So my, my marketing budget is actually very low because I'm sort of teaching myself this new skill set and I'm actually experimenting with some virtual stuff because like the cost per deal here has gone up so much and the yeah. profit has gone down. So I'm now I'm sort of testing a virtual model and uh, learning Google AdWords. So my market now is, is like three, four grand a month, but I'll scale that as you know, I have proof of concept. What is your cost per deal right now? On direct mail? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's like six grand seven grand it's it's yeah it's crazy yeah five between five and seven yeah yeah it's bonkers <laughs> wow whereas opposed to a you know a couple of years ago it was like two or three grand yeah definitely things have have changed just a little bit yeah so what what tools are, are you using right because you're, you're intentionally being small what tools are you using that you could not live without hmm tools that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, everything that I do is so simple. It's like I don't have any fancy systems. Mm-hmm. I use Podio for my CRM. I use DocuSign. I couldn't live without DocuSign. You know, I use CallRail for the phones. Uh, I I really don't have anything like fancy mm-hmm. that that I use that stands out. It's all very basic stuff. So then let me ask you this: um, since you want to have a simpler model simpler business and you don't want to go too crazy why are you in masterminds i mean i know you're not in one right now but you've been mm-hmm. in, in, in some why if you're doing what you want to do yeah no and it's a good question and and like i said you know when we were talking before the show i'll probably join another one this year it's mm-hmm. been it's been maybe a year or two since i was in the last one mm-hmm. and i just i think it's such an important thing to continue to learn and grow and you know I, I have this thing, I, I, I never want to feel comfortable, right? And so it, as long as I'm surrounding myself with people that are better than me, smarter than me, and doing more than me, I'm going to continue to learn and grow. And I'm very competitive by nature. So it's, you know, you never want to be the smartest guy in the room. Right. Yeah. All right. So uh, guys, please ask your question. I, I think Derek Schultz is your newest fan. He's going to be his number one fan. Um, so number one member in your fan club. He's, he's loving what you're doing. Uh, Alexis wants to know how often are you marketing to the same list? I, I marketed to that same list for a few years straight with, you know, intermittent breaks in between, mm-hmm. but yeah, like every month, every quarter. Oh, good. Okay. So I would, I would mail to like a, let's say a, a list of 45,000 that was going to go out in a month. I would pull about 80 or a hundred thousand records. I would then split that into two months of mailers and I would mail, uh, break it up into 16 or yeah, 16 drops. So I had two going out each week. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it was like eight weeks of marketing, but I was splitting each of those weeks into two, uh, two drops so that I didn't have like a flood of phone calls all on Monday. They were more scattered throughout the week. Yeah. And that's what we had. Um, we just did our first drop and they all came in just a handful of days. Um, so, what is your biggest struggle at the moment? Biggest struggle at the moment? <clears throat> well, so I mentioned that I'm, I'm, I'm learning this virtual model. I started, you know, because Phoenix is, 
I'll, I'll always do business in Phoenix, but because the cost per deal has gone up so much and the profit margin has gone down, it's just so viciously competitive here. Mm -hmm. I, again, I'm always looking to go where other people are not. So I started venturing out and doing some virtual deals. I've done deals in a few different states now and learning an entirely new, it's, it's essentially like a whole different process in some of these virtual, you know, uh, or in some of these other state virtual markets. It's like in Phoenix, it's it's hard to get a deal, but I can sell it in two seconds if it's mm. a deal. Yeah. In you know, in Petal, Mississippi, I can get a deal pretty quickly, but selling it is like it's like pulling teeth to get buyers to go to the property and right. call me back once they've seen it and commit and then get earnest money and get the title <laughs> company to do it. They just people just move at a different pace mm -hmm. in some of these different markets. So the dispositions and obviously the marketing is a new challenge for me. I'm learning AdWords for the first time and kind of experimenting with that. It is really fascinating because we're experiencing the same thing as well. It's just people just move at a different speed. And I've never considered Phoenix to be a high-paced society. I don't look at it as like a Los Angeles or a New York. Right. But clearly the rest of the country is moving at a slower speed. <laughs> Much slower. <laughs> than yeah. we are. Yep. Um, so D. McCall wants to know, what are some key traits you're looking for in your buy box? Um, <clears throat> I like for rentals, I like a 3-2 or bigger. I I prefer not, it doesn't have a pool, but that I'll still buy it if it has a pool, if it makes sense. Um, I like to be all in at 65% loan to value, which is tough mm -hmm. in this market. Yeah, very yeah. tough. But as long as I'm 65% uh, you know, of the ARV, I can package that and take it to a bank and pull 100% of my capital out in form of a line of credit and continue building those lines and then have millions of dollars of the bank's money mm -hmm. and just like unlimited buying power. Those are all lines of credit. Yeah. They're not just sitting in your bank account. No, I wish. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm well funded. I have, I mean, I use a lot of my own cash, but mm -hmm. I, I use lines of credit and stuff too. Yeah. yeah. What, um, how do you stay motivated? Um, you know, I have, consistency is key. I think that doing the things that we don't want to do on a regular basis keep us sharp mm -hmm. and not allowing ourselves to get comfortable and and you know um, complacent Consi con consistently doing the things that we don't want to do and forcing ourselves out of bed in the morning forcing ourselves into the gym everything you know it, there's a there's like a this disconnect between what we think we want and what actually feels good most mm -hmm. of the time. Oh, massive you know? disconnect. So like going to the ice gym. Ice cream always tastes great. Ice cream tastes great, but you feel guilty immediately after, <laughs> yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I stay motivated by just constantly pushing myself and trying to level up. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, and what is your, your, your super power? I am extremely calculated. I have... I would say I have a, a just a sort of an innate ability to monetize every deal that I put my hands on and a way of maximizing the profit on anything that I'm involved in. And I'd say that's my superpower. Um, what's the greatest lesson that you've learned? <clears throat> hmm. Greatest lesson that I've learned. <clears throat> I would have to say that the probably the greatest lesson that I've learned is that 
business is important and it's a it's a vital part of my life and it's something I'm very proud of, but it's not everything. Right? I know mm. that's kind of contradictory to like what a lot of people want to hear or mm. thinking, but like I I really believe that, you know, it it's it's important to make a lot of money and be successful, but there's no point in doing all those things and making all this money if we don't get to enjoy it too. So taking the trips, doing the things that we want to do, enjoying our lives and, and, and being there for our family and, and having fulfilling relationships. Like those are, that's the most important thing, Yeah, you know, and, and money and business, it's a way for us to like enhance our life to a certain extent, but, um, you know, enjoying it is the most important part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Dee's follow-up question is, uh, is there an age of home requirement you have, single or two-story, Section 8 housing? Nope. I'll look at any of it. All right. And Isaac Avalos wants to know, does your admin cold call as well? Uh, no. No. What is what is he or she responsible for? Right now, it's, it's mostly just admin tasks. But mm-hmm. when I have, like when I was sending out direct mail, she was doing my leads management. She was handling some of the dispositions and transaction coordination in addition to all the admin stuff, paying bills, paying vendors, some of my property management, she she takes care of for me. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your plan then with the virtual? So um, I'm still kind of figuring that out, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I contradict myself by saying that, you know, I, I want to keep my business simplistic and and small because it's it's very clear to me that in order to scale the virtual model to any kind of you know you know a large amount of revenue like I'm gonna need help so mm-hmm. I am I am in the process of kind of just like figuring it out building out the systems and the processes and then I'll almost likely be hiring for acquisitions dispositions yeah. um, and whatever else I need so it's like it's funny because I'm like my whole thing is to keep it small and be simple but mm. this is a, this is something that I'll, I it's very clear like I'm gonna need help with so yeah. I, will, I will probably be hiring for this and um, who do you plan on you know uh, networking connecting with to help you build out this model uh, I'll probably be joining a mastermind, like I said, in the next in the next this year, mm-hmm. probably in the next few months. Yeah, uh, I've I've got a great network of of guys that are either you know highly sophisticated and successful in real estate or mm-hmm. um, in specifically in the virtual model. So I bounce stuff off of them all the time as I as I'm figuring it out. You know, Brian Manley's when I'm like I'll be hitting him up. Answer yeah. your phone, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was, yeah. yeah that's where I was leading to right because we've had several guys that have actually been in the show already. We got Brian Manley, we got yep. Nick Perry, Nick we got Perry. Sean Terry. Uh, Corey Boatwright is coming up soon, mm-hmm. so like there are a lot of guys doing it really well virtually. Yeah. So you're you're very well connected. And you got the right people. It's a very scalable model. Yeah. You know. Corey's saying that constantly in our Facebook groups. Mm-hmm. He's, he keeps pushing us to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like I like the idea of acquiring assets in other markets too because the rental numbers compared to Phoenix. I mean, Phoenix, I'm thrilled if I can buy a property for a hundred grand and it rents for a thousand bucks a month. But yeah. in like, you know, Indy or, or Alabama, like, you know, you can buy stuff forty K all in and rent it for eight hundred or a thousand a month. Like those numbers are just too good to be true to me. Um, the property management's a bit of a, you know, a logistical 
challenge that I'm not sure that I want to take on. But yeah. again, it's if I can figure that component out, it's that's a, a very scalable part of the business. Um, I'm also looking at doing maybe some lease option or seller financing stuff as an exit strategy, so that I don't I can remove the logistics of the management. Yeah. Uh, but that's all kind of to be determined as I as I figure it out. But again, I'm, I'm going back to my focus of passive income, and that's for me the always been the goal and will always be the goal. Mm. You know, wholesaling and flipping is just a means to you know generate the cash to to acquire these assets because for me that's what true freedom looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've actually had conversations uh, with, with Jamil about this, and uh, he's betting, and I don't think he's wrong. He's betting that. A lot of money is going to eventually flow into the Midwest because a the numbers make ridiculous sense, yep. and b people are just finding places to park their money. Mm -hmm. You see the stock market going crazy, real estate going crazy, crypto going crazy. People are just looking for somewhere to park their money. He thinks it might just flow to the Midwest, and they it's been a rental market for so long that but they might actually start experiencing appreciation. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's see what other questions are there. Uh, so, uh, I learned was asking about marketing. We already talked about that. Uh, Alexis wants to know how often, um, how often do you pull your list? Uh, the list I was pulling every, every two months, the one that I was pulling, I was pulling directly out of the tax records. So I wasn't even paying for that list when I was doing it. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've paid for lists over the years and those I'm, if I, if I'm paying for a list, I'm probably marketing to that list, you know, five times or so because mm -hmm. I want to maximize it. But when I was pulling it directly from the tax records, I just, I would just pull a new one every other month. Right. And then do you, as follow up question is, are you using a whole open title policy? On anything that I'm flipping or wholetailing? Yes. And Francisco wants to know if you were on a tight budget, but want to do direct mail, do you have any suggestions? That's a tough question. Yeah, that is a tough question. Direct mail is expensive, man. I would say, you know, I guess we'd have to define a, t a tight budget, but mm -hmm. you know, keep it super simple. Like the direct mail, I think people, any type of marketing, I think people have a, t a you know a tendency to overcomplicate it. The I've used, I use letters, right? But I think postcards can work just as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I would go with a postcard. It's cheaper. I would figure out a way to pull a free list versus having to like, you know, buy on list stores and and go from there. You know, it's fascinating. Um, I used to think direct mail was expensive, but then once you hire cold callers and you text, right? Or you do PPC or any other form of marketing, even RVM jobs. With RVM jobs, you have to drop tens of thousands of people, right? You can't just RVM drop like right. a thousand people and expect anything. You have to drop a lot of people. It all works out to be about the same. Yeah. Well, the, the, so the irony is, like, I'll tell you a story. I remember one time I changed my mail piece. This guy sold me at a printing company. He sold me on the idea of sending out a mail piece that had like this fancy text responder thing on it where they could text and get the offer. And it was like a whole, he said, your response rate's gonna go through the roof. And it's true. My response rate was much higher, but it was way more crap leads. Mm -hmm. And it was just more garbage to sift through to get to the deals. The number of deals were really not any different than the mail piece I was sending before, but I was just doing way more work mm -hmm. comping all these additional properties from people that wanted an offer. And I find that that's kind of been my experience with Facebook and with cold calling. I go through, you know, uh, direct mail, I'm anywhere from 12 to 15 leads per contract. Whereas cold calling, 
I'm like 50, 60 leads per contract. Facebook, 50, 60 leads. It's a lot more legwork to just get to the good one. Mm-hmm. So you end up paying for them either way. Yeah, it's, 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 I, I, after going through all my experience, I don't think direct mail is expensive anymore. Yeah. Relatively speaking. Well, and, and, and if you value, if you put a value on your time as opposed to just the money that you're spending on it, mm-hmm. then it's like a no brainer, right? I right. would much rather have fewer leads that are higher quality and more likely to convert into deals than just a boatload of leads that are 90% junk. Right. You know? So I see you, you know, posting a lot, Instagram, Facebook, kind of live vicariously through you, right? Single, traveling the world. I remember you had this ridiculous motorcycle in in Vietnam. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any concerns, problems, you know, like uh, there's this thing that happens as you become more successful and I think that's something that affects a lot of newer people getting into the business. Whereas you have success and you share your success, people kind of don't like you for that. Did you have any of that experience? Um, I mean, I would say I really, I really try to remain humble mm-hmm. and I live fairly modestly for my income and the success that I've had. I don't, I wouldn't say that it's, I've experienced like any sort of, I mean, I, they're haters, right? Let's, mm. let's be honest. There's haters. Yeah. Um, I did, I did go through a, a divorce recently. I was married for a couple of years and I went through a divorce and she came after me for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, a big learning lesson, you know? Um, so anyone new or getting into relationships, I would, I would say, you know, protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're getting into a business partnership, protect yourself, right? right prenups and business uh, contracts with a clearly defined exit if it doesn't work out I think are necessary Mm -hmm. Uh, I lost a lot of money and I learned a lot from it Um, but as far as you know how it's like affected relationships with other people I can't say it's had a huge impact I Mm -hmm. I'm I'm pretty low-key I've got a I'm I'm not single anymore I've got a girlfriend now she's amazing yeah Um, you know but but I, I, I'm fairly low key, so I haven't had as many haters as, as people that are maybe in the in the spotlight and more yeah. publicly known. So I've kind of gotten the the so the reputation. I always say be careful with partnerships, right? Like you know, don't do a partnership unless you absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned having a clean exit or a contract, whatever. Mm-hmm. What are some things that someone needs to look at if they're like thinking about doing a partnership, doing this wholesaling business together? So my suggestion, I've had a couple different people approach me with, you know, the proposition of partnering and I, I've considered it. Um, I've never, you know, followed through with any of them because it just never felt right. And I, again, I I like simplicity. I like what I have going on. I don't feel the need to complicate my life with a partner, but, but partnerships can also be like really beneficial. Mm -hmm. And I, my suggestion for anyone considering getting into a partnership is to partner with someone in business who, you know, offsets your qualities. Like you want a yin and yang, you want one person to complement your skill set, not, you know, the two of you are good at the exact same thing. That would be my (laughs) suggestion. Right. Right. But my other suggestion is to get divorced before you get married, so to speak. Mm. What does it look like if six months from now, a year from now, three years from now, this just isn't working. And, you know, for whatever reason, you want to dissolve the partnership. Nobody wants to be in court <laughs> battling and fighting and spending a bunch of money on attorney's fees for, you know, a year, however long it takes to to sort through all that stuff. So outline it in the beginning. What is the worst case scenario and what does that look like and how do we make a clean break if this doesn't pan out the way we think? And then there's a lot less 
confusion and yeah. things to sort out. If if and when that day comes, you know, hopefully it doesn't. But I love the way you put it though. Get divorced before you get married. Yeah. No, <laughs> uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so you've got a lot of properties. Um, I would imagine your tax liability is not very high. You'd be surprised. <laughs> so <laughs> on the, I mean, I do enough revenue in my wholesaling and flipping business mm -hmm. that I pay a lot in taxes, a lot more still? than I'd like to. Yeah, ah, okay. still. Well, because that's one of the reasons why I'm intentionally acquiring more rental properties. Yeah, but I will say owning real estate it has incredible tax benefits. I got yeah. a great accountant who you know handles all that stuff for me. I ask a lot of questions and and I you know I, I read books on it too and educate myself. I don't just strictly rely on him, but I I. You know, I did a few years ago, I did a cost segregation study mm -hmm. on a bunch of my rentals. I think it saved me almost $50,000 in taxes that, that one year. Mm -hmm. So now every year I do a cost seg on anything that I've acquired that year that, you know, that makes sense to do the, the study on. So let me ask you this, because cost segregation is something that comes up a lot, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in our masterminds and so on. And they talk about, you know, doing bonus, depreci uh, bonus, bonus depreciation to reduce your tax liability that year. You're basically just bringing it in earlier. Yeah. Are you 1031 in that so that you can do it again or do you just keep that property forever? I've never done a 1031 exchange. It's probably something I should educate myself on and and get familiar with because yeah. I do think as I as, you know, as I buy more and more real estate or especially as I acquire larger, you know, assets that it, it probably will make sense to start 1031ing and yeah. saving the tax because I mean, I, I've only sold a, a couple, a few of my rentals. So yeah. I try not to sell anything, but I'm also kicking around this idea right now, like in this market that we're in right now, the values are so high that I'm realizing, you know, if I don't sell it when it's at this value, I'm essentially buying it again mm -hmm. at a much lower cap rate. Right. Because if I could move that money somewhere else, I could probably get a higher yield and, you know, make put it to better use. But I don't want to pay the taxes. And so the ten thirty one thing is it's not something that I've done, but probably something that I'll I'll educate myself on and try yeah. at I some need, point. I need to talk to someone really smart about this thing because we talk about bonus depreciation and that's cool, right? You're reducing your tax liability. Mm -hmm. But if you ten thirty one it, you don't have to repay it. Right. And then you can depreciate the next asset. Yeah. So why not bonus depreciate ten thirty one bonus depreciate? Because once you think your bonus depreciation, there's no more depreciation. Yeah. Right. So the rest of the time, the it's lifetime done. of the asset. Yeah. So why not 1031 and do a bonus depreciation again? Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think you might have to repay it. I'm not positive. At 1031, I don't think you have to recapture. I don't know. That's a so, good question. Need to find someone really smart, guys. If you, if there's someone listening that's really smart yeah. <laughs> about accelerated depreciation and 1031s, I would love to have a conversation about this. Maybe we'll record it, post it in our in our, in our podcast. Um, so, guys, if you have any more no more questions, uh, we, we'll we'll wrap it up here. So, I want you to think about any last thoughts that you want to leave them with. I think you've had a lot of powerful messages, uh, but leave a last uh, come up with a last thought, guys. If this was valuable for you today, please like, subscribe, share, comment. It's the signals we need to give the Facebook to YouTube. Tell them that this is valuable content so we can reach more people, so we can create more millionaires. Uh, tune in next week. we got Brian Aregpu. He's flying in from Houston. He's going to be talking about how he was able to make six figures a week during COVID using creative financing, right? So if you want to make a little more revenue, you want to learn about creative financing, Brian's the guy. So last thoughts. Last thoughts. Okay. Um a couple things. Just to reiterate, 
right? Enjoy the success along the way. Mm-hmm. There's a great book that I read once called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Mm-hmm. And it's That's about, a great book. Hey, you know the book. It's mm-hmm. a fantastic book. And this girl, what it is is this girl uh, works for, she's a caregiver for people who are elderly and dying. They're terminal in most cases. So she she has conversations with them about their regrets in their lifetime. And a lot of these people say, I wish I wouldn't have worked so hard. I wish I would have spent more time with family. I wish I would have done, I wish I would have done the things I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that is such a crucial error on the part of so many entrepreneurs who have all this success. And it's like, it's ingrained in us to keep pushing and grinding and building and doing more and being more. And somehow like, so many people, myself included, get lost in that journey and like life will pass you by really quick. But the reality is, you know, I don't want to be at the end of the road, super rich and looking back at all of the opportunities that I missed that I, things I should have done or having regrets. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and the truth is, I mean, nothing's promised. Like I get killed in a car accident tomorrow. I could get paralyzed in a snowboarding accident next month mm-hmm. and I guarantee you I wouldn't be laying in that bed thinking I wish I would have worked harder and and made more money I'd be yeah. thinking man I wish I would have I wish I would have gone to Vietnam I wish I would have you know taken that trip to Turkey I wish I would have done the things that I really wanted to do I wish I would have spent more time with my family yeah. so those things I think are so important and um, success is amazing and it's important but you got to enjoy it along the way Right. And you just got to carve out time. Like people always ask me, how do you just stop everything and take off? And I'm like, dude, I just, I close my eyes and I book the trip. Like I literally don't think about it. I just force myself to do it because, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to have that opportunity later on. Yeah. The other thing that I'll say, final thought is, you know, as wholesalers and real estate, you know, investors were exposed to so many good deals and good properties and you know i knew a lot of people back in the days of the trustee sale that wholesaled a ton of deals and made millions of dollars and didn't keep a single one and the truth is this market that we're in it's not going to last these these prices aren't going to keep going up forever right it's going to correct at some point uh and and no matter how good you are at something your income can change your business can change the market can change. So we experienced that with COVID. Yeah. So my advice to people is always like, it, just save some of those properties for yourself, right? Stockpile. If you know, and rentals aren't for everyone. Not everyone wants to be a landlord or, or, or have a rental portfolio. There's other ways that can. There's other ways to create passive income and freedom from this business. But I always, you know, I'm biased, obviously. But I always suggest to people, don't be one of those guys who wholesales a million deals and then has no portfolio. And one day, if wholesaling in the model of wholesaling changes or your income goes down, you suddenly like don't have this, aren't able to sustain the same lifestyle that you want, right? So. That's my advice is save some of those properties, build, build a portfolio, create passive income. And that's true freedom. Yeah. I was actually reading a statistic last week. I was like, there's no way this could be accurate. Only 16% of realtors have rental properties. Yeah. That's so sad Yeah, for an industry where you buy and sell real estate. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So thank you. Yeah, man. My this pleasure. Fun. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you Steve. guys. See you guys next week.